We're in John 1. For those of you who weren't here last week or haven't been here for a while, we'll be looking at the first five verses, and uh, we're going to focus on two through five. So, hear the word of our God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help me to speak the truth plainly this morning. I ask that you would remove the veil from the eyes of those who don't believe, so that they might see the light of the gospel as we proclaim Christ the Lord. For you, who have said that let the light shine out of the darkness, can shine in our hearts so that we can see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is only in your light that we can see the light. Grant it to us in Jesus' name. Amen. As R.C. Sproul has said, ideas have consequences. And uh, one of the ideas that we have that has great consequences is what we believe about the creation or the beginning of the world. Let us not be ashamed to say that everyone, no matter what they think happened at the beginning of the world, are acting on faith. Because there is no one in this room, or any scientist, or anyone else, who was there. There's no videotape that exists so we can see exactly how it took place. Everybody, regardless of what their viewpoint is, is making a statement of faith. Okay? You look puzzled. Even in Hebrews it says, By faith we believe God did this. So it is an act, it is a, a, an element of faith for us as Christians who believe that God created the world. But it's not just, you know, what we think about how things came into being that affects how we think about what is now and what will be in the future. For those of you who are adults and have been sitting in on uh, Mike's Sunday school class, you probably heard about the Babylonian myth uh, about the existence of the universe, and you knew, you might remember, that Marduk, the god, decided that he needed someone to serve him. He wanted slaves. And so he created that which exists outside of himself, and it makes perfect sense then, therefore, to understand that what the Babylonians tried to do is conquer the world, to make slaves of people for their nation. It's a direct consequence of what they believed about the existence of the world. I think Friedrich Nietzsche encapsulates what ought to take place in the minds of most people who believe in secular humanism and scientism and all of those things, those who believe that we are the product of an accident, a great bang that has no basis in the acts of a god, when he says this, We came from nothing, and we go to nothing. In between the two nothings, we contemplate Our nothingness. Yes, he was not a very cheerful guy, okay? But he was honest. 
He said, if we really are a cosmic accident, we have no eternal hope, and therefore all of this is meaningless. And so if this is essentially meaningless, I might as well just get what I can get. And so his worldview was shaped by his understanding of how we came into being and where we were going. An important thing for us to consider this morning, because John brings us to that place. In contrast to the Babylonian myth in in Nietzsche, we find Richard Sibbs, one of the great Puritans, who wrote this. Apart from the fact that God delights to communicate and spread his goodness, there had never been a creation or redemption. And so for Richard Sibbs, he sees the eternal Godhead full of goodness, full of love, expressing itself in both creation and then redemption. And so he saw his purpose in this life to be filled with that joy and the spreading of goodness and love while he lives in his creation. Our big idea this morning is that the love of God overflows in creation and redemption. First, we see that the love between father and son overflows in creation. Verse 2, we looked at verse 1 last week, but verse 2 helps us, when seen in light of verse 1, to create sort of an odd chiasm. You know, one of those literary things, uh, statement A, then statement B, then statement C, then you have a reflection of B, then a reflection of A. One of those things, that's what we see going on here. Because we saw <clears throat> last week, in the beginning was the word, preposition, you know, proposition A. And the Word was with God, B. And the Word was God, C. And here we pick up. In the beginning, the Word was with God. So it's sort of an artificial conflation of A and B together, for those of you who like that kind of artsy literary stuff. And there are a couple of you who do. So you're excited, and the rest of you are like, who cares? I understand. I know. He's repeating some of these thoughts for us that we see. He's kind of, he's kind of bringing them back together. And we see in a contrast in verse 2 and verse 3, we see that the word was, versus, all things were made. Very important distinction for us to keep in mind. The word always was. The word was eternal. It's distinct from the rest of creation, or shall I say creation. I don't want to say rest of creation. Because he's not part of creation. The word was, but all other things came into being. All other things were made. And so the various groups that follow the teaching of Arius, who think that Jesus was the first created being, and through him God made everything else, have completely missed the boat. Precisely because the word was, and everything else came into being. Not only that, but he was with God from all eternity. That's part of the point of this sentence here. Again, repeating what we saw from verse 1, but he was with God. It stretches back into eternity past, forward into eternity to come, so to speak, if we can 
we can't even, shouldn't even think in those terms, but that's what we have to do with our small minds to kind of encapsulate this idea of time stretching into infinity, past, forward. The Word who has always existed has always existed with God the Father. And part of what this means is that the Father was always with the Son that He loves. I thought about that for a moment. Well, more than a moment this week. And what a blessing it would have been to, to be always in the presence of a particular person. To never leave their, their presence. To never have conflict with them. There was never a time in which sin separated the Father from the Son. Except that one moment we'll talk about later at the end. There was never a time in which different agendas separated the Father and the Son. There was never a time when different interests separated the Father from the Son. It wasn't like, hey, let's go make worlds today. No, I want to paint. Or whatever you might think of. The Father and Son were always in harmony with one another. They were always with one another. They were always enjoying one another. Don't think of God as somehow stoic. When we, when we make that profession that God is love, there is a great enjoyment in the one that is loved. And so the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. There was great enjoyment between them and one another. We see this as well in John 17 in the high priestly prayer. Verse 24 says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may also be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me. And here's the key phrase. Because you loved me before the the foundation of the world. Jesus is telling in the prayer, He's mentioning that eternal love that you received from the Father. A love that did not begin in a point in time, but a love that always was. Incredible love. At the baptism, when the Word has been made flesh, in Matthew 3 we see a few things happening as the Father shows His love, manifests His love to this Son. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven declared, This is my beloved Son, with him I am well pleased. And so there's two things that we see taking place in the baptism of Jesus. As the the ministry of Jesus is about to begin, there's two things that are important. And one is that He sent the Holy Spirit to rest upon His Son. One way in which He loved Him was the sending of the Spirit to empower Him in His human weakness, to fulfill the calling that He had been given by God the Father in love. And not only that, but then the Father declares for him to hear something which most sons love to hear. This is my beloved Son. He makes known who He is. And the fact that He is beloved, with whom I am well pleased. He showers Him with words of praise and thanksgiving. That is the pattern, so to speak, for us as Christians, 
who receive the love of God. We see in Ephesians 1, In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. And that, of course, when we look a little bit earlier in Ephesians chapter 1, we see that that takes place before the foundation of the world. He loved us who did not yet exist in His Son and makes us sons by adoption. Okay? He shows love. But not, not just that, but we see in places like Romans 5 that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so just as the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon Jesus for His earthly ministry, so God gives us the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit specifically pours God's love into our hearts. Because we, (laughs) because of our sinfulness, we wrestle to believe that He loves us. And so the Spirit is sent in part as the Spirit of adoption in Romans 8 to let us know that we are loved by the Father, that we are truly His children if we believe in Jesus Christ. It is this Father, this Son who love each other so much that is declared that all things were made through Him or the Word. The Father who creates everything, created everything through the Word. Jesus is not supplanting here in John's theology God the Father from the act of creation, but rather He's joining with God the Father in the act of creation. The Father creates, but He creates through the Son. And so we see here that whatever the Father does, He does with the Son. They're not just with each other hanging out, doing who knows what. But all that the one does, the other joins together. The unity of the Father and the Son in purpose and plan, as well as activity. The Father does nothing alone. He doesn't say, Son, I'm going off to work today. Hope you have a great day playing. But I've got work to do. He says, son, come with me. We have work to do. Because I love you and I always want you by my side. He created, as we see from Genesis 1, through speech, the word. We see this one in purpose idea. Last week I mentioned Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one. One of the things that we kind of trip over sometimes is when we talk about that word one, when we say one, we tend to mean, you know, mathematical identity. That, you know, one plus one is two, that kind of stuff. That word that we find in Deuteronomy 6 is the same word that is found in Genesis chapter 2 at the very end when it says that the, a man shall leave his father and mother, he shall cleave to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. So now Amy and I, she's not here right now, she's looking after children, we're one flesh. But that doesn't mean that we've been physically joined so that we are numerically one. We're supposed to be one in purpose, one in goal, one in mind, one in heart, one in soul. We're to be together, united in things. That is God's intention for marriage. And God is always united together. Those three persons, always united in purpose and intention. That's the idea, not this numerical sort of idea. And like a fountain, their love overflows. 
If you don't put, if you cover the drain in any fountain, what's going to happen? The water keeps coming and it's going to overflow into everything else. The love of the Father and the Son, as well as the Spirit, though we're not talking about Him so much today, that overflows to create a universe in which to shower their love. It's meant to be a recipient of God's love. And in a sense, Michael Reeves talks about this, and he says uh, he believes that the world is a gift. Creation is a gift from father to son. Which makes sense when you think of the fact that in Matthew, uh, sorry, in John 17, it talks about those you have given me. There's a people that the Father has given to the Son. He's given him all of creation as well. It is going to be his by inheritance. It's a gift of his love. And so all of this should speak to us that God was not lonely, that God was not seeking love. He was not like a desperate person. Won't somebody please love me? when he created. But he overflowed with love. And it was a love that sought to include others, to bring others into that circle of fellowship. Most of us can look at a marriage and see a healthy marriage versus a not-so-healthy marriage, largely by one characteristic. If there's no room for anyone else in that marriage, it's not healthy. By that I mean... They're, love, they're so focused on each other that they can't see anyone else. They're selfish about love instead of inviting people to relate to them. And particularly the fact of children. Wanting to share the love they have with one another with children. To, to make children. To bear and raise children. That's a healthy love. That's not just turned in upon itself, but one that looks outside for others as well. And that is the love that the Father had for the Son. They wanted to share. John states this positively and negatively in this rather difficult sort of sounding sentence. All things were made through him. That's the positive. If there's something that was made, it was made through him. And and without him was not anything made which was made. And so this states the same sort of idea, but with the negative sort of statement. There's not something that was made without him. This, of course, would be a complete rejection of the views of Arminius and those who have taken up his uh, idea that Jesus was the first created being. But there's a greater implication that is here. That the creation, as we see in Genesis 1, was good. It's not as in the, the dualism that we see in Gnosticism and some other religions that there's a good God, that spirit is good and matter is evil. That which God created is material and that which God created is good. Not evil. The problem right now is that it suffers under the curse And it suffers under the curse precisely because of Adam's disobedience that we see in Genesis 3. God subjected not just Adam and Eve to a curse, but he also subjected all of creation to a curse, which is what Paul talks about in Romans 8. 
the creation groans. It's longing for something as it suffers under the sin of humans. And so the universe that we experience exists as a result of the creative joy of overflowing love between the persons of the Trinity. Secondly, the Son gives life as an overflow of love. You see, God did not just create inanimate objects and then waited and seen, he just kind of waited to see if something grew out of it. God did not wait to see if there was some protoplasmic gel floating around in the oceans of the world and perhaps, oh, maybe I'll send a little bit of lightning and see what happens kind of thing. All right? This is completely contrary to the ways in which evolutionists imagine that life came into being because it says that it comes to being through God Himself. God did not just create inanimate things, but He created animate things, living things. In Him, the Word was life. We see that here is a declaration of the self-existence of the Son. And He is self-existent precisely because the Father was self-existent. Psalm 36. What a great phrase this is. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see the light that Paul picks up on in 2 Corinthians. In John 5, we see it put this way, For as the Father has life in Himself, or is self-existent, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. The Son is also self-existent. Meaning that Father, Son, and Spirit are not dependent upon anything else for their existence. They have life in themselves. You don't. If I deprive you of certain things, you will die. Depending what I deprive you of, it may be sooner rather than later. If I deprive you of food, it will take a while, but guess what? Eventually you're going to die of starvation. If I keep water from you, it'll be a lot shorter. It'll be a couple of days before you're dehydrated and you are dead. If I deprive you of air, really short, you have a couple of minutes. That just shows that we are dependent on external things to live, but God doesn't have that external dependence on anything to live. Not only did God create it, but we saw in Colossians there that He also holds it together. Our existence is tied up in the power of Jesus to hold everything together. Paul says in Acts that we live and move and have our being in Him. And so life was created through the Son of God. The Word created plants. The Word created fish that swim in the sea, as well as mammals that swim in the sea, and spider-ishy kind of things, those crustaceans. He provided animal life. But then, in Genesis, we see a difference. 
we see that God breathes life into Adam, the first man, through the Spirit. That whole idea of, of breathing, that same word that means spirit, breath, wind, ruach, spirit. It speaks of the Holy Spirit. And so God gave special life to the man and would later give special life to the woman in a different fashion, but still special life. We depend upon Him for this life. And so we see that the love that overflowed between the Father and the Son overflowed in such a way that it gave life to beings who could give and receive love just like them. Not slaves, not robots, not automatons or puppets, but people who bear the image of God and are able to love and receive love. This life received, John says, is the light of men. And so John is introducing a bunch of the themes that are going to flow through the rest of this book. Life. 36 times John is going to say life in the rest of this gospel. Light. 24 times he's going to bring up this question, this word light. Darkness shows up seven, but it's always going to be contrasted with light. This light usually has connotations of two things, both truth and righteousness, but they reflect God's glory. And that's, the, that's part of the thing that I think we, we struggle with, that idea of what is God's glory. On the one hand, it's his weightiness, but on the other hand, it's his radiance. And so part of that life that we have, because we're made in the image of God, means that we reflect his radiance, and we were intended to speak and believe truth and to act righteously. Adam was made upright, not, you know, he stood on two legs, but upright of character. We were made to share that. The Son, who is the light of the world, later on in this gospel, shines as the radiance of God's glory we saw from Hebrews 1 last week. And so the idea is sort of as a light. The sun shines forth the glory of God, and we are intended to reflect the glory of God to others. That's why we're made in this image. We're meant to be like a mirror, so that others might see the glory of God. We're meant to radiate His truth, His righteousness, or His glory. And so the beloved and the loving Son gives life so people can reflect His truth and righteousness. But, there's something wrong. John is going to introduce what's wrong. I mean, anyone who reads this will recognize that there's something wrong in the world. We don't see the light as we ought to, so to speak. We don't live as the light as we ought to, so to speak. But we see, thirdly, that the sun triumphs over darkness through love. Here, John is introducing the conflict that is going to shape this whole gospel. But there's a problem.
one of the things that's interesting about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is when they first go through the wardrobe, what they encounter is a world where it's always winter and it's dark. The darkness, in a sense, never leaves till the end. There's a darkness that was present in the world because of Adam's sin. But we see here that John says the true light from verse 9. Here in in, uh, 4 says, shines in the darkness. So most of these verbs that we've seen in these first five verses have all been past tense. This one is present tense. So it's not that the the light shone and no longer is. But the light shines, it continues to shine. Even though there's darkness, the light shines. It shines in this darkness. The world is dark. There's a spiritual darkness, but the light still shines. And then the line, the witch, and the wardrobe, one of the landmarks that you see early on in their, their journey into Narnia is the lamppost that burns in the midst of the darkness. There's a place they can find light in Narnia. John speaks of this in numerous places. John 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They wanted to hide that which they do in the midst of the darkness. And John 8 Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so Jesus is acknowledging that there are those who walk in darkness. Just as we saw from Isaiah 9. There are still people who walk in darkness because they do not follow the Son because they're not following the light of the world. They still live in darkness. But those who do follow Him have light. They have the light of life. How does this all happen? Where did this darkness come from? I did mention the, uh, the sin of Adam. Paul expounds upon this in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so this darkness is associated with ignorance and lies. They have exchanged the truth for a lie, Paul says in Romans 1. And so part of the darkness is about the lies that people believe. About where we come from. About where we're going and about how we're to live now in the middle of those two places. There are lots of lies. There's lots of ignorance about these things. But that's not all that the darkness is. The darkness is also associated with sin and unrighteousness. That those people who exchange the truth for a lie have been given over to their dark desires. They've been given over to bitterness. They've been given over to hatred. They've been given over to lust and so many other things. 
But it's all connected to the fact that they exchanged the truth for a lie. And now they think that what is evil is actually what is good. And they think that what is good is actually evil. They're completely confused because they live by lies. The darkness is also associated with the misery that comes as a result of these ignorance, this ignorance, these lies, and this unrighteousness. It produces misery. And so what we see is that Jesus did not come to a light-filled world, a welcoming place. Jesus came to a very dark place in need of light. The conflict is seen in this phrase, the darkness has not overcome it. Depending on which translation you might have, if you have the uh, NIV, I believe, no, it's the NASP, understood, the darkness has not understood it being the light. It can be translated that way. That word, catalambano, uh, who cares what, you know, but it can be, it has this idea of, of grasping, laying hold of something, and it can be used intellectually to grasp, lay hold of a concept with your mind. And so it, it can mean that. And if it were to mean that in this context, it would basically mean that lies do not understand or comprehend the truth, that those who lie in the grasp of lies, or those who are in the, in the grasp of lies, oppose the truth, they're caught in their folly. And so well, while we would say that is true, that I don't think that's really what John is getting at here. I really like the fact that, he's, you, that it's translated in most places as overcome because there's a conflict that has to be resolved here. The darkness wants to overcome or to extinguish the light, not understand it. Darkness does not like light, as we saw in John 3. It wants to hide its sin. It doesn't want the light of truth. And so the darkness tried to extinguish the light, as if that were possible. How could you extinguish the one who, in whom there is life, the self-existent one? How can you do this? But what we see here is that the one who in the beginning separated light and darkness at creation in this gospel of John's is going to overcome darkness in redemption. John speaks in the past tense because what we're going to read about with the cross and the resurrection is past tense to John as he writes this. And so I think this is pointing not to creation, but this is pointing to redemption. The love of God not only overflowed into creation, but overflowed in redemption. Jesus conquered the darkness by going to the cross for the ones that he loved. It was driven by love. No one made him go. Jesus says, I go willingly. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. John 10. 
So it was according to the set purpose of God, and we see also that this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent His Son as a propitiatory sacrifice, atoning sacrifice for our sin. And so it was the love of the Father and the love of the Son that resulted in the cross for our redemption. We see this portrayed particularly in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The four children have gone into Narnia, a place that is foreign to them, and one of them makes a big mistake. Edmund makes an alliance. He becomes a servant of the White Witch. Treason against the true king. And so when Aslan shows up, the witch makes it known that this one must die because he's a traitor. But instead of letting the witch kill Edmund, what Aslan says is, me instead. I can take his place. Slay me instead of him. And he does this precisely because of his love for Edmund. And of course, the witch and all of her little minions rejoice, thinking that once, finally, they have defeated the true king. What they didn't realize is that they can't kill God. And so Aslan, as a picture of Christ, comes alive on the third day and begins to make everything new. And so the forces of evil sought to destroy the light, but they realized too late they could not extinguish him. Jesus rose again and initiated what those theological people call the recreation. Genesis again. And so John's Gospel here is not just about Genesis, but it's also about Genesis again. That he is restoring light to a world that has been covered in darkness. You see, the one who created everything also has the power to recreate everything. That he is going to undo what sin has done. That's what John's Gospel is going to be about. And it's a call for us to believe in that one of which he speaks. What you believe about the beginning shapes what you believe about the end, and it also shapes with how you live, how you live in the present. John calls us to believe that we exist because the eternally loving Father, Son, and Spirit wanted to share their love with others. He wants us to believe that the darkness we see and experience is not the whole story. It's not the final verse. It doesn't end there. The light of the world wins. Jesus conquers. John wants you to believe in this light. That you might have life through this light. That you might learn how to walk in love through this light. And so the question that John has for all of us this morning that we might think it's a simplistic question and we're beyond that question is, have you entered into the love of the Father through faith in the Son? That's the real important question. It is only by faith in the Son. Let's pray.
Father, while we may believe this, it's also what we are to testify to. Help us to be clear about what we testify to. Continue to reshape our minds, to renew them, to sanctify them, that we might more and more have the mind of Christ, that we would be more and more able to clearly articulate the faith that we have, might be able to more clearly articulate the one in whom we have faith. But Father, most of all, we need to believe ourselves, not for a moment, but a standard operating procedure. Grant that we would never lose sight of the one who came to redeem sinners for himself. Grant that we would never lose sight of him who made everything. So that when the darkness seems to be winning, that we, Father, would not be overwhelmed with despair, but that we would always remember that the light shines. The sun is always there and will always burn and will one day reemerge. So through this, give us hope for what is to come. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.